0: Hello and welcome to Megacity Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and my guest for this episode is Senior Lecturer in Art and Design at the University of Dundee. Also the Art Director of Dundee Comics Creative Space, which I'm going to ask him to tell me about at the end. Uh, I guess therefore also part of what Tony Esmond refers to as the uh, Dundee Comics Mafia. It's Philip Vaughan. Welcome to the podcast, Philip. Hi, Eamon. Thanks for having me. Uh, that's great. Thank you. I think we met briefly at Thought Bubble when we sort of first mooted the idea of talking about this, didn't we?
1: Yes, it seems like a long, long time ago now and a lot has happened in between, but yes, we did. And, uh, and we've, we've met at, at other uh, events over the years, I think, in, in the passing. So it was great to be asked... Uh, to come on the show because I've been listening since uh, the first episode and uh, it's actually Simon who, who put, put me on to it uh, originally and, uh, and sort of recommended and so it's great to be to, to make it happen at last and uh, yeah I'm really
0: looking forward to having a having a chat. Yes our mutual friend Simon from episode one um, a bit of a Dandere fan we'll come back to that. Um, so Philip you know how we start with 2000 AD or comic origin stories tell us about your first experiences getting into comics.
1: Sure, well, being from Dundee, uh, born and bred, um, I, I suppose it really goes back to DC Thompson's and the Beano and the Dandy. Uh, and everyone sort of grown up in this area, you know, we would get the local newspaper, the Dundee Courier. My parents would get that sort of delivered to the house. And uh, and, uh, and, and uh, it suddenly, you know, around about age 10, the, the, the Beano and Dandy started appearing with it. So I, I thought it was just by magic, but no, my parents had got the, the order from the newsagents. So I started to read the Beano and the Dandy, uh, around about that time. And then 1982 really sticks out for me as a, as a sort of turning point um, when the new Eagle came out. And again, we're going to concentrate on that a little bit uh, later on. And I remember the TV adverts and uh, the, the the hype around the Eagle coming back. And, and my dad was quite keen on it as well, because he remembered the original Eagle, uh, although it was quite different uh, especially with the photo stories, which, again, we'll probably talk about a little bit later on. So uh, th- when that came out with its free space spinner, the ubiquitous uh, space spinner that, that seemed to be free with every comic around that time, they must <laughs> have the warehouse full of them, I imagine. Um, and uh, I, I, so, yeah, I, I, I bought into that straight away. I remember going to the newsagent in Money Feath, which is quite near Dundee, and uh, getting that on a Saturday morning and just being kind of blown away by it, especially Dan Dare and especially Doomlord. Um but uh as you grow older you know you kind of graduate onto older comics and my first 2000ad prog was prog 390 quite late in the day i suppose uh it was 1984 november 1984 and it's the issue with uh which was done by brett yunes and it's the wally squad cover um and uh so that was my that was me sort of graduating if you want to to more uh, adult comics and, and content I suppose and and it was kind of like being thrown into the deep end because a lot of the stories were mid you know stream so uh, Road Trooper was coming to an end actually the first one that was uh, the, to the ends of New Earth part 4 I think in that issue uh, and again I was kind of blown away by Cam Kennedy's work on that uh, it, ha- it had um Nemesis of the Warlock by uh, Pat Mills and, and Brian Talbert at that point, and that was just a pure gothic, you know, action and an adventure and, and quite dark. Uh, and the, the dread, like I say, was was Wally Squad, and and again, I, I didn't quite know what was going on. I think that's what appealed to it, to me about it. I thought it was like, well, actually. I want to know more. And what I started to do was kind of work backwards from uh, Prog390 and picking up um, and the storylines and filling in the gaps. And what especially helped around that time was when the best of 2000AD um, issues came out. So I was able to to really get up to speed with the stories and the background to a lot of these, uh, these things that I'd come to midstream. And, and really, I have not actually stopped buying it. Ever since I've, I've I've kept with it uh, through thick and thin, um, and uh, you know I've been a I'm now a subscriber, so it still comes through the letterbox, uh, just like the comics did when I first started uh, reading them.
0: Yes, it's a lovely thing when it hits the mat on a Saturday. Some, hopefully, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> sometimes a Monday,
1: you know that, that was like the old days as well. Sometimes it appeared with the newspaper, and sometimes it didn't so you know but yeah there's something quite nostalgic about that i suppose and and it's a bit of a ritual i suppose of being able to to read it at the weekend and you know and and uh for for me that subscription model works very well i've never really gone in and picked it up in the store it's always been delivered and I kind of like that and especially during the, the lockdown that's actually something that has been kind of key to keeping going is that subscription model so maybe that's something that, that, that gets looked at in the future for other publications
0: particularly in America. Yeah okay well let's get to it because we've mentioned it a couple of times tell us what you've chosen to come on the podcast and talk about today.
1: Well we're going to talk about the new eagle but um, principally we're going to talk about Lord and uh, the Death Lords of Knox. And uh, it was collected. It was at Hibernia Comics publication uh, from David McDonald in two thousand and six, but originally ran uh, in in the comic just after it transferred from um, sort of glossy paper and uh, photo stories to drawn content, all drawn content. so it was quite a stark uh, change. you know I do remember at the time being brutally disappointed about the new look you know because the new look was kind of downgrade, I suppose but well, it turns out it wasn't really a downgrade in the stories or or the artwork it was just the quality of the paper I'd say and the printing wasn't as good in a way it actually upped its game it actually became much more creative much more because they could basically do more They uh, couldn't do a lot of things with the photo stories they were very limited in, in, in their scope and certainly things like special effects and you know going into space and things like that were, were a challenge you know um so um so yeah so it, it starts uh, in in 83 and uh, it's a very very long run doom lord um, and um, written by John Wagner and Alan Grant, although mostly credited to Alan Grant, uh, which is interesting, but that's just the way they divvied they up the yes. stories, and had a chance over the years to to speak to both John and, and Alan about you know who did what, and it was very much a kind of collaboration there, and, they, and, and of course they created all these crazy um, pen names as well, some of them you know, with slightly um, dubious backstories to to them as well. I think think at one point, um, if you picked up the new Eagle, they were writing every strip in there. Yeah. You know, just, about. So I could see the reasoning why they might want to kind of hide, you know, their names behind uh, an Ian Holland or a F.M. Kandor or, or uh, you know uh, many other um, uh, pseudonyms that they would use. And um, the art uh, on on the Doomworld uh, story when it when it transitioned in, into drawing. Uh, was by uh, Heinzel, which is rather an anonymous type name. And it turns out that that was actually uh, Studio, studio Galotti, I think is, is how you say it, in, in Italy. So it was actually a studio, although it did seem to have the hand of, of one artist in there. So I would just wonder how that was divided up. I'm imagining maybe it was penciled by one artist and then the team in the studio. We we ink it um, just to get it out in time, and it was a it was an interesting contrast. Obviously, they were using quite a lot of reference from the uh, photo strip at, at first, so the mask is is fairly obvious that when they've copied it from the um, the photo strip. But it just it, it really just changes the scope and the direction of, of Doom and Doom was very much rooted in reality, and it was a little bit kind of suburban and a little bit kind of. Lo-fi, and you know, when they went to, when they would go to, say, New York or, or the United Nations, and you know, you could tell it was actually here he is again in the in, in IPC's, uh, you know, um, building down in uh, down in London. So they they did what they could, you know, and uh, I just thought that that really the the it took on a, a different perspective when it moved to drawn uh, work. Uh, really, it freed up the creativity of the writers and and the artists as well.
0: OK, great stuff. Um, now, you, of course, everybody, I think, is familiar with the original Eagle that Simon Belmont has talked about on this podcast from 1950 to 1969. Uh, the New Eagle, you know, I guess another tick for this podcast because it's another British comic that we finally get to talk about. Tell us a little bit about the New Eagle, because this was one that I'm, I confess I was less familiar with myself, but obviously, you know, um, an important comic for you.
1: Yeah, well, like I said, before it launched in March 1982, high production values, very nice design. Uh, it was very well designed, I think, by Doug Church who did the design on um two thousand AD, early two thousand AD. And it seemed, yeah, it seemed very, very slick, uh, high production values. The printing could could hold, you know, painted artwork. Well, ironically, you know, most of the stories were photo stories, which again wouldn't wouldn't have worked in newsprint, it wouldn't have worked in the letter press because it couldn't hold the um the tone, the grey tones, uh, as well. So it felt like a quality publication, much like the original Eagle, I suppose. Did. You know, at the time, it, it felt like it was okay. This is the future, and this is like, you know, we're going to push the limits of what we can do. Uh, and for me, the Dan Dare strip stuck out, you know, because it, it obviously it was originally drawn by uh, Jerry Embleton uh, and initially written by Barry Tomlinson. was set up by Barry Tomlinson. They handed over to Pat Mills and, and John Wagner uh, to continue. So the center spread looked stunning, you know, and especially when. It turned over to Ian Kennedy and I'm a massive fan of, of Ian's work from the New Eagle onwards right to this day. I'm lucky enough that Ian lives in Dundee and he's 20 minutes away, not even that, and uh, pop up to his house quite often. And certainly before the lockdown and very often to go and see him. Uh, so I've been lucky enough to be able to chat to him about his time on that strip. And, you know, Ian's still, you know, still working to this day in comics and doing work for DC Thompson, doing the cover. But the artwork, it just, I just thought this is, a, this is just something I've never really seen before uh, in at the time in British comics. Because even 2000 AD, and like I said, I didn't come to that until later on, it suffered a bit from the, the lighter press, the, the printing standards not being Great, you know. So uh, it was more of a black and white publication with you know flat colors, and I just couldn't believe that this was coming out every week. You know, the quality level um, was, was was very very good. And, and by the time Ian gets on to to Dan Dare, he really ups the game, and it goes up from two pages to three pages, and eventually four pages, and it's on the front cover, much like the original Eagle. The the design of the comic um, meant that the story started on the first page. And I would argue that that run uh, that Ian did with, with Pat Mills uh, mostly writing and John at the start, to me, it does compare to the original in the the, the detail, the level of detail, the creativity, the storyline eventually kicks in when um, when uh, the Firefly sort of uh, series um, starts and we have a bit of an origin story, Young Dare, as it's unofficially known, where it goes back in time and you see how he became, you know, uh, a, um, a colonel uh, eventually. So it, it, it sort of it had an interesting structure that Dan Dare story, but the other stories as well were, were very much, you know, uh, trying to trying to tap into that kind of market at the time. So you had a kind of cop show, if you want, Sergeant Streetwise. You had a spy series, uh, Mannix. Um, the Tower King was a, a very interesting sort of feature, world gone wrong, um, amazingly illustrated by um, Jose Ortiz. And you know that kind of initial lineup, I think, uh, was very strong. They had a football story as well by uh, Tom Tully, uh, who wrote Roy Rovers at the time, and that was more aimed at, at kind of kids. Uh, so it was a school team that was a underperforming school team. Um, so they were kind of covering all the bases of, of what a boys' comic, as, as it was known, should be about. Uh, and for me, there the was something I liked about every story in there. And it also had articles as well. Although you know, some of the articles worked better than than others, and certainly some of them haven't aged very well but uh it was a good read you know it gave you um it gave you a lot uh for the the, the 20 pence cover price uh and uh I, and you could actually you know you could actually kill time with it you know you could spend an afternoon reading it uh it was ch- it was challenging up to a point i wouldn't say that, that it was a uh, cutting edge stories It was still quite traditional uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the other creators in there were maybe coming from a more traditional background from, from older British comics. But I don't know, I just felt like um, it resonated with me.
0: And as you've said, it you know, it has a... Because it, it runs for about 12 years, isn't it, the New Eagle? Um, yeah. With a few hatches and matches, as we've put it, along the way. And it's got a, a great number of strips. I, I would guess we should point people at the Where Eagles Dare podcast which specifically covers the new eagle Uh, and I have had Peter from that show on this podcast talking about I think Jose Ortiz and the 13th floor and of course I'll link to the Where Eagles Dare podcast when this episode comes out we particularly would mention episode 23 because you're on that one aren't you (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean, I was I was lucky enough to be asked, and they came on my podcast as well. So just just for an interest of uh, of, of clarity, and um, so we swapped out, I suppose. And uh, yeah, I came across the uh, the the Weird Eagles' Dare uh, podcast I'm fairly away. I think they'd done quite a few episodes before I picked up on it, and I just really liked it. I liked the tone of it. It's uh, it's quite uh, light, uh, lighthearted. Uh, it's sort of it's sort of tongue in cheek, and it pokes fun a little bit at, at some of the stories. And I, I love the. The music they put under to bed the the the, the stories, and when we use like the Grain Green Shell theme tune when they're talking about Crow Street Comp story, and they'll use uh, you know Dempsey and Makepeace when, when they when when they about maybe Sergeant Streetwise and things like that. So it's nicely produced. Um, and it surprises me that they don't get more listeners. I think it, it deserves a bigger audience. So uh, maybe this is a, a nice shout out to them. Um, yeah. So I was asked to go on to talk principally about the run uh, of photo stories. They've just come to the end of of reviewing. The Eagle, The New Eagle, up until uh, it changed over to, to the drawing content. So I was lucky enough to go on there. And and, and uh, like I say, they uh, returned a favour by, by coming on my uh, podcast, which at the time I was doing for uh, Comic Scene uh, Magazine. So that was, that was great fun. Uh, and again, it's something that I could talk about you know, forever. So stop me if I go on for too long. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, tell us, I mean, because when the New Eagle launches, the one thing that makes it uh, particularly distinctive, I mean, obviously you say higher production values than 2000 AD at the time. But the other thing, of course, as you said, is the photo strips, which again, um, slightly baffling to me. But could you tell us a little bit about how they uh, they came to be a thing? You know, was was it down to Barry Tomlinson and the original sort of editorial team? Yeah, I
1: mean, as far as I'm aware, uh, David Hunt and and, and Barry um, came up with this idea, obviously based on girls' comics at the time, which were very much uh, going down that that route, and you know had been for for quite a while. And certainly in Dundee, there's everyone's got a story about how they were in, you know, a, a Jackie photo story at some point, you know, because uh, it pulled people in, you know, off the street mm. almost you know, to be the actors uh, in these in these stories. And uh, so it was it was sort of it was. Uh, it was very unique to do that in, in, in boys' comics, if you want. Um and a bit of a gamble and I'd say sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. I think um when you have the um the collector stories, for example, which were the one and done, you know, future shock type stories with a little framing device which was drawn and then you go into a photo story it's a, a little bit jarring and the budget was a problem obviously you know there was there was no budget so you get some very interesting cut and paste sort of special effects and you know uh, sometimes in-camera trickery sometimes you know just someone with a scalpel you know <laughs> sort of cutting the photo out and, and pasting it down and and they, they did what they could um and and sometimes it, it gave off a very kind of spooky kind of film noir feel. I think Doom Lord especially, uh, especially when they shot the stuff at, uh, at night in the first episode actually uh, achieved a kind of uh, otherworldly kind of uh, feel, uh, almost invasion of the body snatchers type type of vibe to it, which, which really made it stand out. I have to say the football strip didn't work particularly well for me because it was very static. It was quite obviously they were posed, you know, taking the shots and passing the ball and, you know, running and things like that. It, it didn't quite work for things with a lot of movement uh, in, in them, you know, they tended to be quite static pieces. And again, maybe fell down a bit when they did sort of period pieces so there was a couple of war stories that they did that was basically a bunch of guys dressed up running about a field somewhere and just outside London you know so it didn't quite you know feel uh, real you know there was something quite sort of off about them sometimes you know Uh, although some sort of famous faces pop up you know people you might have seen on TV mostly I would say maybe B list, you know, rather than A list people, you know, popping up and 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 a lot of people popping up in different stories, uh, numerous times as well. There was obviously a small talent pool that they can they can uh, choose from, but I kind of I, I like them, um, but they're an odd form of comics. I think um, you know some people just cannot relate to them at all um, and don't really enjoy uh the, the photo story format. I actually did a talk about um photo stories last year at San Diego Comic Con and the academic conference there. And uh I was I was shocked to to look into the audience to see Scott McLeod was sitting in the front row who Oh right uh very <laughs> I know if anyone doesn't know you know he's written numerous books understanding comics and, and comic creating Bibles if you want. And uh he kinda he kinda threw me when, when I saw him sitting in the front row because I like, what is he gonna make of this? You know, because that was principally talking about British photo Photo stories and uh, their legacy and where they came from mostly romance comics and then right up to you know the new ego and, and, and even beyond that but uh, but he did seem to, to enjoy it uh, even though it's probably it was probably something that um, he wasn't too aware of I think again it was a very British thing at the time although there are some examples as an American um, Marvel Fumetti book, as they, they call it, or as it's known in Italy, Fumetti. Um, so there's a there's a brilliant Marvel book that they did in in the 80s. That is, uh, it's a very bad, you know, costumes of people dressed up as Spider Man and the Hulk, and some black and white. And it's printed on newsprint. Uh, it's hard to see what's going on. But even Marvel tried it. You mm. know, it was one of these things that became a kind of fad at the time, and even 2000 AD dabbled in it as well, so they had the very famous, you know, Nemesis yes. uh, folk story which was, uh, which was uh, questionable, uh, I would say, you know, I mean, um, it had some nice model work, I think it was by Tony uh, Luke, who did some of the, the masks, yeah. and you know, but uh, I think it fell down to the fact that it didn't have, obviously there wasn't any time tunnels or anything like termites, so it was set in a comic shop, I think it was Forbidden Planet, actually, uh, so it was set in a comic shop, at least one episode of it was, and they did it a couple of times, and then I think they realised, this isn't really going anywhere and went back to traditional art. So the folk stories, I suppose, they had uh, limits, they had budget issues. Um, I don't think they were overly popular with the readers, to be honest. Um, so, like I say, when, when we move into the drawn content, I actually think once it gets into its stride, the new ego at that point when it turns to drawn stories is actually probably its strongest run. It's probably its golden age is between... Uh, 1983 when it when it turns to to that and and probably up to 1986 87 before it goes through one of its uh, many revamps and many mergers. I mean the amount of mergers it had is is kind of almost it was almost like one every you know couple of months. You're just waiting on the next comic to fold into it. and The eagle always won out, you know, and yes. never got into anything else, um, which is maybe a shame. It maybe could have merged into 2000 AD at some point. And maybe they could have kept some of the stories going, you know, like. Computer Warrior, for example, which was initially run, uh, written by um, John Wagner now and Alan Grant. So yeah, the the photo stories of their time, you know, challenging uh, to read and um, maybe not that popular.
0: Yeah, I do, I'm fascinated by them. I mean, as you say, I'm looking at the first issue of the Eagle, which I have got here. Um, it's the football one which stands out as being the slightly more tricky one isn't it because as you say yep. very difficult to convey football action in a photo strip um but you know the other thing i guess that they're really sort of pushing themselves on is uh portraying a space alien in a photo strip tell us for anybody who isn't familiar with him tell, uh, tell us about the character of doom lord and the doom lord comic
1: Okay, so Doomlord is a servitor from the planet Nox and uh, in the first episode there's a mysterious you know, UFO in the sky and... Uh uh, a cop uh, and a member of the public sees the, the, this, uh, this light in the sky and they investigate, and they're confronted by uh, essentially uh, what it looks like to me is is, is uh, an alien in a smoking jacket, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, hanging about in the middle of nowhere uh, with this very unusual mask, I have to say. And again, there have been numerous origin stories of the mask um, behind the scenes, and I think the best take on that is quite was quite recently when, I like, think, um, John Freeman potentially put out a, a a story on down the tubes, which which linked to where that mask actually came from. Um, so it did actually come from a, a, an agency that, that that created masks and ended up, I think, in some sort of joke shop, according to John Wagner, where they picked it up and and the outfit as well. So anyway, they they basically run into this uh, this alien, and uh, straight away he shows off his powers by sucking the life force out of uh, out of the policeman. And taking on his form, uh, so you know, you straight away. I mean, it's, it's actually for for children's comic. It's fairly gruesome. There's a there's a pretty heavy um, body count um, throughout the whole story. I would say. I mean, he's, he's not uh, adverse to taking people out for the the greater good, you know. And, and what happens is that a reporter kind of starts to catch on to the fact that strange things start to happen and people disappearing or people acting out of character um, and, and he investigates and that's essentially the, the plot if you want for the first run of Doomlord where it's more based on the fact that Doomlord is a villain and, um, and Howard Harvey who's the reporter is, is kind of chasing him and you're just kind of rooting for, for Howard Harvey over that initial run. Which I thought, for me, I I loved that initial run. And I actually think they didn't think it would go beyond that. I think they were surprised by the success of that. So it does come back, you know. And over the course of, I think, about 13 or 14 issues initially, it is a bit of a sort of cat and mouse game, you know, between Doomlord and and, and the report. And no one believes the report. They think he's mad. They think he's crazy, you know. Uh, Doomlord's head doesn't show up in photographs and it's all kind of explained away, you know, as a, 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 a photography error, things like that. So, it, you know, so basically Howard Harvey's Chases Doomlord all over the world uh, on a limited budget. I don't know how a reporter managed to, you know, jump on a flight to New York and and be back home in the next day, you know, just on the off chance of of sighting Doomlord. But um, but it was intriguing. It was different. It was pretty dark, but had a kind of typical John Wagner Alan Grant tongue in cheek element to it, where you never quite felt they were they were taking it hundred percent seriously themselves. But, yeah, it's it, again, all of its time, you know, some of the sets, if you want, uh, again, are quite obviously offices in King's Reach Tower. Uh, so it's kind of like spot the, the the familiar backdrop, you know. And it did have decent special effects, this one. I think they tried, you know, when the characters got disintegrated and, you know, uh, when Doom showed up as our other powers, they were trying to do interesting things with the layout, I think. The layout of the pages, to me, uh, helped quite a lot. So, yeah, the first run... Uh, ends, I think it's safe to say now, I don't think it's a massive spoiler, you know, to say that it ends uh, with Howard Harvey kind of trapping, if you want, Doomlord and uh, and uh, eventually uh, killing Doomlord. But Doomlord transfers his life force to Howard Harvey right at the end. So basically, Howard Harvey has to kind of sacrifice himself uh, to make sure that Doomlord never comes back, which spoilers, he does. And spoilers, it's not the original Doomlord. But the original Doom Lord does come back, and that's later on when we get into the drawn strips.
0: And uh, you've mentioned one of the great, or two of the great mysteries of British comics, where the Tharg mask came from uh, for the Tharg photo shoots and where the Doomlord mask came from, which shops they were in London, as you've said.
1: Yeah, there's a good link, I think, and um, maybe we um, can find that and put it into the notes for uh, the, the agency and the actual listing for the mask. But the mask is... For anyone who hasn't seen it, I'm very distinctive and uh, very iconic. And a couple of years ago, I actually um, made my own version of oh, it. Right. <laughs> um, I actually, um, through work, I, I modelled it in 3D because I used to be a 3D animator, and I got it 3D printed. So I do have a 3D printed uh, Doomlord mask that we did a little Photoshop um, a spoof of Doomlord a couple of years ago, which I, I could send on to you if you're interested.
0: Absolutely, yes. And of course... Yeah, this podcast is good for correcting my um, various comic myths I uh, believed in. One was that uh, photo strips were cheaper than artwork, but actually it was the other way around, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you're paying actors, you know, they're not particularly cheap, I don't think, even at the level of of acting that, that they were at. But uh, and again, there's post-production there's the layout artist, you know, has to be lettered. It's uh, hugely expensive, especially when it's as ambitious as uh, Doomlord was. Um, so they did use a lot of stock photography as well. So when he did go to New York or United Nations or whatever else he was traveling to, he would suddenly get a kind of stock library shot of the UN or you know. Uh, so and even later on, there was um, some very stock footage they used for crowds and nuclear missiles, and it does get it does actually get very political as, as it goes on. The first story, like I say, I don't think they thought it was going to come back. It's fairly self-contained. So when they found out it was popular, I think they kind of quickly came up with a new premise. So by the time Doom Lord 2 comes around, the new Doom Lord who has come as a replacement of the original one they sent, he is a bit of a softer character in a way. He's a bit more of a hero or becomes a hero in a way. Uh, He sympathizes with the people on Earth. He's not going to, he's not here to destroy them. Uh, He wants to try and change them. And that's an interesting direction, I think. I think that that, that interested me, that they they, they twisted the premise of the first one uh, on its head. So eventually, Doom Lord himself, the new Doom Lord, becomes hunted by his own people. And that's where it gets really interesting. So he becomes an outcast, a bit like Doctor Who, I suppose. And in the story um, um, that, that we initially spoke about, the Death Lords of Nox, they send three kind of super-powered Doom Lords to chase after uh, our new hero, if you want. Uh, and it becomes, again, a bit of a cat and mouse game. And it shows off a bit more of what you can actually do.
0: And we helpfully have, at least for me, in the start of this uh, Hibernia comics collection, we have a synopsis for each of the first three Doomlord stories provided by Paul Scott. Um, So I'm guessing, I, I think the answer I know to this is that those were all photo strips then. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and then when we get to Doom Lord Four, which is this story, the uh, Death Lords of Knox, is when it first, and that's 1983 when basically they decided. Is that pretty much then the end of photo strips for New Eagle or just for Doom Lord?
1: No, they went, they had a clean sweep at that point, so all the photo stories ended, uh, and in the next issue, it was all drawn. Even uh, a strip Walker Die, which was started off as a photo story, transitioned into a drawn story in the space of a week which is very odd actually it's very strange as a, as a reader from a reader point of view to go from a photo story uh cliffhanger and then into drawn content the next week uh challenging i would say but yeah it, it, by the time it, it goes into the the drawn content they drop the kind of you know it's not really classes as Doomlord four it just becomes Doomlord, and i think that's just to enable them to keep it going which they do for a very long time after. It had an incredible run, really, when you think about it. Um, you know, um, there's, um, there's, there's a couple of art changes on the way, well, a major art change on the way uh, after this, this run, um, when it merges with uh, Scream. And they take on Eric Bradbury as, uh, as the, the main artist. And he has a, I think it's about a five-year run on, on the strip, uh, right up to its conclusion. Uh, arguably a uh, uh, darker and a little bit more um, vibrant sort of uh, movement uh, in Eric Bradbury's work than there is in the, the initial artist. There's nothing wrong with the, 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 the artist uh, Heinzel, as, as he's known, or she. I mean, it's, it's so it's such a pseudonym as well, you know. Uh, yes. You, you could be anyone uh, behind it. But it's a, it's a little bit stiff, the art. It's a little bit too clinical and it's a little bit too... Polished in a way, I think what Eric Bradbury brings to it is a little bit more kind of earthy uh, it 's very inky and it's uh, it 's more fitting I think for the content of the story
0: all right i 'd be yes i 'll have to have a look at that because we 've talked about Eric Bradbury a few times as a great British artist, yeah, I mean in places, if we look at this black and white art in places, I think particularly when he 's in these doom lord <laughs> um, sort of appearance, it can look a little bit strange and there 's a very odd sequence. He transforms into animals a couple of times yeah. and the Doomlord dog is Yeah, it's pretty famous. I mean, I have to say I was gonna
1: talk about that anyway, so he beat me through it a little bit. Yeah, there's a very odd sequence where uh to escape the um uh, the, the, the death lord he he changes into a dog, but he retains the face of Doomlord on the on the dog. It's sort of a horrible sort of, uh, I suppose it's a bit like The Thing, you know, it's a yes. bit of a take on, on The Thing um, at, at the time, and it's like, it's a very odd sequence where, you know, you're basically rooting for a, a dog with a, a Doomlord's face sort of morphed in, onto it, not for the whole duration of, of the strip, but a fair share of it is is actually Doomlord as a dog, so, you know, it's sort of like a weird alien version of the littlest hobo, I suppose. You know? so.
0: <laughs> The one that you never thought you needed, but apparently, yes, you do. Yes, <laughs> and, and that's quite well known. Then, is it the death, the Doom Lord dog?
1: Yes, yeah. I mean, I'm just looking at it now myself, actually, and it is fair. It is truly bizarre um, because he's 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 imparting basically his his grand plan uh, and to uh, a, a very worried uh, mother and son who <laughs> are standing looking at a dog which has an alien head on it, and uh, and he, he explains what's going to and what's going on, and, and uh, the, the fate, of, and how the fate of the human race is at risk, uh, and it's it's a pretty crazy premise, you know. I don't know quite what John and Alan were thinking at that <laughs> point, but, uh, but uh, it, again, it makes it memorable. You know, it's one of these, it's one of these uh, iconic images. I think that for me, when I look back through, I, I remember that image so well uh, from, from being a child, you know? So they were very good at, at creating very iconic sequences. And um, for, for me personally, there's a very interesting uh, part later on in the, in the strip when they, uh, the, they have a battle and they, they, they the the fourth Uh, rail bridge (laughs) pops up and you know and it's like uh, so they start to move around the country a little bit and i think they end up in leeds at one point as well and uh, i don't really think the italian artists have much uh, references there it was right (laughs) because it could be anywhere the the, the police cars in particular look very uh, american and they don't look very british you know so there's there's weird things like that going on again just by the sheer nature of how comics were produced at the time where, again, if you're, if you're uh, farming out the, the strips to, to Italy, Spain, Argentina, you know, there's some of these sort of translation issues, I suppose, uh, or cultural issues that, that pop up. And I think, again, that's maybe what Eric Bradbury brings a bit more of a British feel to, to the comic, whereas this strip is sort of, it almost lives in a world that's somewhere in between Britain and America, uh, purely because of the, the reference points. Um, but, but again, it is beautifully illustrated. It's very good use uh, from an artist's point of view of uh, black and white uh, composition and, and dead space. And, you know, um, the layouts are really good. The action sequence are really good, I think, uh, in here as well. So it's it's very sophisticated and it certainly doesn't uh, lose any momentum.
0: No, and I mean, I've, I've got the fourth rail bridge here and the next page... Planes crashing, trains flying off bridges. It's, it's full of action. And a few pages earlier, we'd had one of those motorway sort of pileups that you see in movies where you get one crash causes a chain reaction as well. So there's plenty going yeah. on on the page, isn't there?
1: Well, yeah, and it's certainly something you can never do if it was a photo story. So yeah, you know, I <laughs> say.
0: This, is, this is
1: where it really kind of, I think I think uh, uh, John and Alan were really let loose with the story there. They can go, we could do anything now, essentially. You know, I mean, I'd love to see them try and tackle that, the, the plane sort of crashing into the into the bridge uh, in, in the photo story. You know, I think be, it takes some very clever cut and paste, uh, which I think was maybe beyond them at that time. So it could only have been done in the drawn version of the script, I think.
0: Yes, yeah, so I guess you're, you're right. It gives uh, John, and particularly Alan, uh, the chance to do much more doesn't it you know like have a have a doom lord dog uh, i suppose they could have managed doom lord santa claus which is in this volume but they the, the dog <laughs> the bird and then of course planes crash cars crash trains crash um yeah um, that would have pushed yeah, a photographer I, wouldn't it I,
1: I do i do feel that the the doom lord santa claus was an editorial decision i don't know it feels kind of tacked on, you know, I think it was just so they could have Doomlord on the cover uh, with his Santa hat on, which I do believe does does happen. So, you know, I do feel like it's almost the same as putting the snow on top of the logo, uh, which happened in a lot of British comics, you know, when it came to the Christmas sort of festive. And that was
0: a Barry Tomlinson thing always, wasn't it? Always have something Christmassy.
1: Yeah, I I do think Barry's hand was in that, you know, let's have Doomlord in a Santa hat. You know, that feels very Barry to me. (laughs) Yes,
0: uh, and of course, he does. Um, he posts some of these covers on his Twitter account quite often when he's talking about them, especially as we get towards Christmas. So, uh, yeah, okay. And then you know, I guess the credit boxes mostly say uh, Alan Grant, um, although we know from John and Alan that sometimes it was just a question of who actually typed up the script, wasn't it? Who got the the credit? But you've mentioned that they managed to write you know, whole issues of of the New Eagle. They they've They done the same in 2000 AD. Their output in the 80s in British comics, it's just staggering, really, how much, I know we keep coming back to it on this podcast, but how much they could produce.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know how they had the time or the energy, Drew, really. And to come up with the ideas as well, they were, uh, just today I was reading someone say that they couldn't quite believe on a reread of, of of 2000 AD, how good a run they had on on Judge Dredd uh, between you know the, the end of the seventies and into about 1986. You know it was just they were firing on all cylinders, very creative stories. You know um, they they were pushing the envelope on what you could do. They were pushing the envelope on what you could do in in, in a kids' comic. You know because you've got to remember Ego was aimed at a slightly less uh, lower age group uh, than 2000 AD. But sometimes you you couldn't tell that because. You know, Dumour is pretty violent, you know, like I say, he's killing people left, right and centre. is a high body count. Some of the other stories are quite challenging. Um, uh, they're, I, I think they're getting away with a lot of things that, you know, are going under the radar a lot of the time. And they're hiding behind the, 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 uh, the pseudonym sometimes as well. I, and I don't, sometimes that was about the quality of the story or, or their perceived uh, you know, quality of the story. Maybe if they didn't feel the story was their best, they can stick it out under another name and, and no one will know. But other times I think it was just the fact that you couldn't have the whole comic written by two people, although a lot of times that, that did happen. But it, it didn't lower the quality for me. I mean, I, I I enjoyed all these stories at the time in that run. I think it was just, they were tapping into pop culture. They were looking at TV shows, films at the time. They were doing interpretations of of those kind of stories. Uh, and, and others ran for years. You know, I, I was particularly fond, uh, you mentioned earlier on, uh, the 13th floor, and that came in from um, Scream. I was particularly fond of the way that, that John and Alan, under the pseudonym Ian Holland, and um, I used to keep that going for, I think it was around about five years as well. You know, it was a, it was a long, long run for quite a flimsy premise, you know, really. <laughs> you know, So they were able to take, you know, a, a kind of concept and idea and mine it for every single creative idea that they could, you know, over the years and keep these stories going and going. And again, that's, that's clever because it's basically keeping you in work. You know, so I think uh, I think there was often this uh, accusation thrown at Tom Tully, who could keep these uh, pot boilers going forever. You know, he would start a story off, and eventually he did end up working in the New Eagle and did pretty much the same thing on Dan Dare, where his stories would run for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, sometimes you felt like there was a plot. Sometimes you felt like he was making it up uh, as he went along. Um, but he was a master of that, and John and Alan were of a similar uh, mindset and, and coming from a similar background. They they were able to take concepts and keep them running. And I think it's interesting that that from this point onwards, it does feel like Doomlord is one continuous story. It doesn't feel okay. There's breaks in stories and there's new stories within the continuity of the, the over arc, you know of the, the the story arc, if you want, over the years. To me, it feels like one continuous story from this point onwards. And the fact that it ran for so long and there's brilliant continuity within there as well, you know, when he eventually has a son, uh, which sounds very odd, but eventually he has a son. That storyline runs kind of for years and it resonates for years and, you know, it takes it in a completely different direction. So... That, to me, the longevity of of the strip, I I found uh, astounding, really. Now, if you think about, you know, how often American comics reinvent themselves and, you know, they're constantly going resetting characters and, you know, they lose that continuity all the time. I think it's amazing that, you know, John and Alan were able to sustain this.
0: Yeah, absolutely astonishing. I mean we, you know, we constantly talk about it on this podcast, but when they were writing just all of British comics it seemed, including several of the girls comics as well, um just astonishing. Um I guess from this volume there's one other thing which uh They must have reused at a later date, probably John did, which is the idea of a sort of like demonic doom lord living with um, a, 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 a landlady who's slightly confused about who he is, which I guess John would later use for judge death as well.
1: Yeah, that, I think that was I kinda of think that was genius So, you know. I think that was um that brought it down to earth and um it gave it that comedy element that it was kind of missing in the first um three um sequences when it was a photo story. So it, it it gave them a chance to do this kind of uh almost sitcom stroke soap opera uh, with uh, the, the sisters and the, the, the kids uh, and the landlady and the relationship between uh, um, Dumlaur's alter ego, Eric Plumrose. He was a traveling salesman. And and the fact that they they would see him as a traveling salesman, but really he was an alien, you know, and there was lots of comedy moments within that. And eventually, even that though they turn very, very dark, and it becomes part of the end sequence of the whole series. Years later, where the sister boys, one of the boys gets infected with Dumore's blood, and and uh, and and uh, and morphs into uh, a version of Dumor and it it goes it goes crazy at the end. I mean, it really does. You know, the, the ending of it, and it's actually kind of open ended. It's one of the most bizarre endings of a series I've I've ever seen. Um, i think it was rushed i think they just had to wrap it up very quickly i think i think they wanted it to come back and it, by that point british comics were changing and the new ego was changing so it, it was a real shame that it didn't keep going because i think lots of people have you know uh, a longing to see it back in print or um or, or to continue or you know because it's such a it's such a great character they were such great characters um but, but basing it with that down to earth it could be someone next door to you, you know, watching Coronation. You're obsessed with watching Coronation Street at one point, which is really bizarre. <laughs> um, you know, so I think I think what they're trying to do is just get it from a, a reader's perspective at that point as well. So you had all this fantastical, outlandish, you know, alien action, adventure, science fiction, and then at the end of it, it would all come back down to Earth. And I, I found that really interesting. And like you say, it, it, there's a, a similar... Conceit with the with the, the 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 judge death story later on, so it's it's too good a, an idea to waste, I suppose.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it wouldn't be the Eagle comic uh, without Dan Dare, um, which you've mentioned. And as you say, it starts off with Jerry Embleton, who gives us a very sort of. 1960s uh classic looking down there. and then as you say it then i think particularly for the you know the cover images i recognize but also the interior pages by ian kennedy who just takes over and is uh still thank goodness a comics legend
1: yeah i mean uh, i mean ian's, ian's the reason i got into doing what I'm doing, and and like I say, it's, it's amazing. I could get him in to do classes for me. He's done multiple classes for me, and just just uh, the end of last year, uh, he came in and gave a, a class to to the undergraduate comic students on page layout and taking a script, which was written by uh, Callum Laird, who um, he was a former editor of Commando. They came in, and delivered a workshop, and you know Ian was uh, was there, and we got the students to lay out a page. And then Ian, had, here's one I did in advance. And it was only meant to be a sketch. But, of course, Ian being Ian, he finished the page off uh, and completely. So we used that in the class as a sort of, well, this is how a kind of master does it, you know. <laughs> and it was really interesting to compare all these page lives So, again, when, when Ian starts, I think for me, something that struck me straight away on Dan Dare was the double page spread and the way the page was laid out. Um, it was complex. It was. It wasn't just uh, boxed in. It wasn't a grid layout, uh, but you could still read it. You know, it was still uh, obvious uh, how to transition through the panels, and that really interested me. And of course, it was beautifully painted. The line work was immaculate. The um, the technology, if you want, and the tech and the the trains and the Mekon, uh, and the outfits and everything just worked for me. You know, it was just genius. You know, and I think it really came into its own later on when Ian was able to get involved in the tech, and uh, he's obviously very well known as being into uh, aviation and yes. aircraft, and he was able to feed that into the Dan Vairstrip. So when when we start getting some of the the, the um, the, the more battle-focused sequences with spaceships and you know going into outer space and you know firefights and you know things like that, it just comes alive in a way that I, I've never really seen since you know on a on a on a British comic, uh, and, and certainly not for a, a long sustained run. This, again, a bit like Doomlord, there were stories: the Return of the Mecon, Firefly, and there's a few other others in there, but it was essentially one sequence. So it was uh, it was a long run, uh, again wrapped up quite quickly in the end. But it really let Ian loose on exactly the type of thing he should be doing. And for me, some of the best issues of, of the new Igor are when Ian does these fantastic covers near the end of its um, its uh, its glossy run, if you want, um, some of those covers are, are absolutely beautifully designed, uh, beautifully illustrated. And uh, I just don't know how he managed it. I've asked him many times, how did you do that every week and he it, it, it said it, the answer is so matter of fact. It was like, "Well, I just sat down and you know I just did it, and then you know and, so, and yeah, I'm looking at this arguing. How is that even possible? Yes. You know, uh, and this is the day before, you know, any uh, internet uh, references, you know, he did let like, slip that one of his favorite uh, reference points was an old Reader's Digest uh, manual on uh, Hoover pieces uh, right. that he used uh, for some of the more technical elements. Although it is very, very hard to tell what his references were. And he could just draw anything. You know, the characters were very engaging as well. The action sequences and the colours, the colours. I mean, Ian comes in and talks about colour a lot uh, and he still uses acrylics. And he just, something you can never really recapture with digital work, which we get a lot of now, is the colour palettes. And I've been lucky enough to see a lot of his original art now and he's done work for us as well, for covers and things for the university. And it's just it's just amazing what he can do. The composition as well, I think, just, just talking about the composition, what he can do with a cover and that kind of sense of space and dead space and where the title's going to go and you know, leave enough space for you to work around. You know, it's just... He's just a legend, like you say.
0: And hopefully uh Thought Bubble 2021, I guess, with a bit of luck he'll be there. Um, and so will we, hopefully. So we'll get to see him again, because he is just, you know, he's astonishing that he's still producing such beautiful work. And his covers for... Uh, his Dan Dare covers, I just love them. They're just fantastic. Yep. But of course, we're not alone in that. Everybody loves Ian Kennedy, thank goodness. So, Philip, collected editions from the New Eagle. This is a bit tricky, isn't it?
1: Yeah, there's uh, a- there's an appetite for it. And um, it's, uh, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's there's some issues in the way. I'm not quite sure how, how uh, David managed to get um, this collection out, to be honest, because uh, it's one of the few... Um it's owned uh, as as a, an entity, uh Dandere and the other new eagle stories by the Dare Corporation. And um people have tried, I think, to including myself actually at one point, we were trying to do something with Doomlord, potentially. And it's just uh, it's just a bit tricky, I think, to to negotiate, you know, and I think uh, the there's there's not been as many reprints as as I would have liked to have seen, and I think there is a market for it. And it's a real shame, like I say, David's done a few. He's done, he did do the, the Do More book, which we're talking about, but he also did collections of the Tower King and um, the House of Demon as well. I managed to get that one out, beautifully produced again. I mean, all, all of uh, David MacDonald's books, uh, the, Hi- the, the Hibernia comics are amazing. And I just bought the the most recent one um, just uh, this month, uh, Fantastic Adventures. Yes, yes,
0: I've got that one as well.
1: And it's just every book. I mean, I've got everything he's <laughs> ever produced, you know, and, and I said as much on Twitter quite recently uh, because I just can't help myself because the content is very well researched. It's very well designed as well. And um, and the content is just, he does his research so well, you know, uncovering some amazing unprinted work, uh, unseen work, behind the scenes work, you know. So the, the books that, that David, and thank, thank goodness, someone has managed to to get some uh, new ego, content out. I don't know how he's managed it because I'm pretty sure the margins might be quite tight yeah. and, and working that way. So uh, for me though, uh, the biggest crime, if you want, of British comics is that Ian's run on Dan Dare is not collected. That's a real, real shame because the, the amount of people who want that book to happen is unbelievable. And there has been talk over the years of, you know, Rebellion, maybe licensing it like they did with the 2008 AD Dan there. Yeah. And uh, there was talk about that being the third volume of that. There's a few issues with the double page spreads and how they work in a, in a collected edition, but it can be done, you know. Um, and uh, I think, you know, I think that that work it still holds up today as well. So it still looks, you know, it's got a contemporary edge to it. It's not of its time, I would say. So uh, it would hold up in, in the current marketplace. There might even be a new audience for it, depending on how you package it. Um, but I think it's just coming back to the rights at the end of the day, and if anyone has the uh, the time and the uh, energy to to negotiate, you know, a good deal for every party involved. So obviously for the person who's licensing it, but also for whoever's producing it, because you, you do have to be aware of the audience. It's not huge, but it is there, uh, and it would be, I think, economically viable to bring that out as a collection, a real top quality sort of coffee table edition, yeah. you know. Yeah, like DC Thompson did last year, uh, I was lucky enough to be asked to, do, to write uh, an intro to the art of uh, Ian Kennedy uh, book, which DC Thompson produced. And uh, they, they went through the archives, they picked up art, they got Ian's involvement as well, talk about some of the, the, the content. And it was beautifully designed. It was edited by Gordon Tate at DC Thompson and designed by an old colleague of mine, uh, Leon uh, Strachan. I was at college with. And I think they did a fantastic job of packaging that and making it look contemporary, cool, you know, but still having that historical element to it as well. And I just feel like that oversized format would lend itself quite nicely to, you know, Dan Dare strips and that original run. Uh, It might be a series of books. I don't know. I mean, it does. After the initial run uh, and after Pat Mill stops writing it, because it goes into letterpress at that point and different artists come in, it's maybe not quite as uh, creative as it is in its initial run. So it might be difficult to to sustain it past the first large story arcs. But, God, I'd love to see that. You know, I I really, that's that's on my sort of bucket list I think of things to, to see or, or to even do. You know, I'd love to get involved in doing that, maybe even scanning the art or if, what, what little art, original art still exists and uh, or even, you know, working on touching up the the the, the, the scans from from the, the pages themselves. I don't know. I just think it, it it needs to be out there from a historical point of view, from an educational point of view, it would be fantastic to, to point people towards that uh, rather than have to go back to the original issues. And I, I do think there's there is an audience for it.
0: It's fantastic. I have, I can see my copy from here as well, which I bought from Ian at Thought Bubble in 2019. So, yes, uh, lovely. And, of course, as you say, if we could have Ian's Dandere from the New Eagle collected in a similar format, wow. Um, you know, uh, I think you're right. I think there would be a market for that. People would buy Ian Kennedy stuff, but yeah. uh, the rights issues are complicated as ever.
1: Yeah, but hopefully, you know, hopefully they see the potential and what's happened recently with those things. I mean, I never really thought that DC Thompson would ever do an art of book dedicated to one artist like they did with Ian. And they did. So never say never.
0: Yeah. I think. Okay. But in the meantime, we have to thank David McDonald and his Hibernia comics uh, imprint for his fantastic collections, which include doom Lord, the death Lords of Knox. And of course we've also, you mentioned fantastic adventures, his new one, which I think, well, in fact, it does contain a Jerry Finley Day interview, which is a rare thing as well.
1: Yes, yeah, so I did have to laugh at that interview because some of the uh, answers are very um, curt, very, yes. very Um But, but it, is, it is a great interview, and it's it great to hear from him because I, I, I can't remember ever reading an interview with him ever. No. So you know, and it, it, it's fascinating for me to read actually again. Is a weird Dundee connection there because. It starts off and it, it says, so tell us a bit about your background. It says, I was born in Broughty Ferry. Now, Broughty Ferry is just outside Dundee. And uh, and I, I used to live there. Uh, and it's, it's, it's kind of weird to think that, you know, someone I followed as a kid in Broughty Ferry, reading his uh, Rogue Trooper when I first started reading 2000 AD, was actually from the place where I was sitting reading it as a kid. Right. It's kind of weird. And years later, um, through through my work and um, and one of the comics days that we did in Dundee, we had um, Dave Gibbons up uh, as a as a special guest, and I was tasked with with driving Dave around at the weekend, and and we went on a little kind of recce into Broughty Ferry because his dad lived in Broughty Ferry. Oh, um, so I, I do remember sitting in a in a in a, in a coffee shop in Broughty Ferry with uh, Dave Gibbons, and it was like trying to think to myself, I imagine my young self thinking that one day I'd be sitting with. <laughs> Gibbons and Brotty Ferry in a coffee shop. And then the pho- his phone rang, his mobile phone rang, and he just held it up and, it, and he showed it to me and it was like... That's oh, Brian Bolland and I was like, "Oh, come on, this is ridiculous! <laughs> <You know? laughs> it doesn't get any better than this, you know." Um, so it all kind of comes back to, to Dundee, I suppose, or, or in that instance, Broughty Ferry. Um, but yeah, there, there's some brilliant, um, brilliant articles in in this uh, the fantastic adventures, and again, I can't sing the praises of, 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 of uh, David's uh, work enough. I think it's. Uh, I always look forward to, the, to his next publication. I'm already looking forward to whatever he does next.
0: Yes, me too. And I suppose I I will link to David's Comicsy store in the show notes for this episode to have a look there and follow the links. Um, I guess the, the one thing we do have to say is unfortunately when they're, they are limited print runs so when they're gone they're gone um and many of these uh collections that we've mentioned are no longer available um amazingly uh doom lord is still available for a fiver from that shop so you know hurry along it's a bargain, <laughs> it's a bargain. yes it is probably one of the cheapest collections we've had on this uh podcast but uh yeah so we'll put a link to that um, I guess, you know, the, the next question, I suspect I know the answer. What is your favourite story from the complete run of The New Eagle?
1: Yeah, it has to be Dan there, and I've gone on about it. But there, there are others, you know, there are other things that pop up over, over the years. But for me, nothing will, will touch that initial run from issue one up until just after it transitions from the um, good quality print to the letter press. That whole storyline and it kind of it kind of doubles back in itself, and it, it resolves in a very clever way. You know, uh, there's a plot point from a very early issue that comes into play near the end, which which ties everything together and wraps it up beautifully. I, my only regret about Dan Dare is that maybe Pat didn't keep writing it, and and Pat's gone on the record a few times of why he stopped writing it. He just felt like he'd giving it all he could and you know it's problematic and he felt that kind of Frank Hampson guilt I suppose you know that it was never quite worthy enough of the original like I think every creator has done who's worked on Dan Dare since the original they're always in the shadow I suppose of the original Dan Dare Um, but for me that initial run of the the great 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 grandson of, 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 of Dan Dare Really nailed it for me, especially the, the latter end when uh, it, it takes on this kind of pseudo NASA type um, scientific. You know well researched as you imagine from Pat kind of element, uh, and, and Pat was kind of playing up to Ian's strengths as well. He said that as well uh, on numerous occasions. So that run is unsurpassed. It, it comes back obviously again and again, Dan Dare, and it, it does diminish, I think, with each return. And eventually, in 1987, they kind of uh, Tom Tully takes it over and almost turns him into the Dan Dare he was writing in uh, 2000 AD. There's a there's a kind of uh, moment where they, they, he dies and they age him up and he comes back and and he suddenly got this uh, this gun uh, that that, that is, he seems very proud of you know suddenly he's like swinging a gun around and he's got a team and you know all that's missing is uh, you know is a spaceship for him to jump onto and and you know I I do feel almost like it's uh, unused um, plots from the the Dan Dare that didn't happen in 2080 uh, that's my view on it anyway. And uh, so it does kind of run out of steam a bit and then it gets reinvented a few times. And eventually the original Dan Deer comes back. At first, beautifully illustrated by Keith Watson, one of the original artists. But again, I think the storylines let it down. I'm a big fan of Tom Tully's work, but I just don't think those stories matched the artwork at that point. And so, yeah, Dan Deer, for me, definitely favorite. But Doomlord is right up there with it. You know, Doomlord is like the one that, that really was almost second, and sometimes first place, it would, it would swap out. And purely for the, um, the the longevity and how they managed to keep coming up with new concepts and the fun they were obviously having on it, you could just tell. It comes through, you know. You, you know when someone's having fun on a project, you know when someone's struggling with a project, and you just know they're having fun with it, you know. And Eric Bradbury's artwork, if you ever get the chance. And again, it's beyond um, and David McDonald's uh, reprint. It's never been reprinted, so you know you'd have to go back and, and source out the original issues. But Eric Bradbury's run is amazing. There's a couple of filling issues from uh, Jeff Senior actually does a couple of issues where he's kind of mimicking Eric Bradbury's style. Uh, but it's it, it, I, I cannot recommend that enough either. And that is just something that I think uh, is something that you want to read the entirety of if you have the time.
0: Excellent stuff, Philip. Okay, let's give you the Grail pages now. Um, if I allowed you a Grail page from the complete run of New Eagle, and then one from this Doomlord collection, which pages would you pick to hang on your wall?
1: Wow. Well, I may be lucky enough to actually do this. Oh. <laughs> uh, so the, the, there's there's one page in particular um, that I do know uh, exists somewhere, um, and uh, it's uh, it's a it's a, from the um, the run of Dandere when they're fighting just after the, uh, the breakout of the Mekong's um, pyramid. And then they steal this experimental spaceship called the Firefly. And uh, they basically fly over Grand Canyon. And there's, there's this, this, this a really nice element, you know, a uh, space battle in there. And there's an element where um, they come under psychic attack in the spaceship, and there's nice cockpit shots, and there's so it's a double page spread from that issue that I do know physically exists because I've seen it. It was on my desk in work because we did an exhibition a few years ago of Ian's work, and he does have that page. You know, it's safe to say. You know, so and um, so that that that's the one that that stands out to me because I've had the the luck to have seen it and see how how well it's painted. As an artist and someone who, who teaches, it's something you you can learn a lot from just looking at original art. Um, and Ian's art in particular is immaculate. When you see that quality, you know it comes across in the page. Don't get me wrong. When you're you're lucky enough to see that in real life, it just blows me away. You know. So that that one is is, is a particular favorite from Doom Lord. I would say it's actually an Eric Bradbury page um, that is actually in the issue uh, when Tiger merges, so it becomes the uh, ego and tiger, and they try to maintain a merger where both papers, as they would call them, maintain the same uh, balance in the header. So it's ego and tiger, and it's the first page of Doomlord in that merger issue because they um, they bring back the original Doomlord. So there's an accident in the lab where uh, Howard Harvey died, and they accidentally release. The, uh, or contaminate the and bring back the original Doomlord who came in the first series, uh, who then battles you know the the new Doomlord you want uh, the more heroic Doomlord the, the Doomlord who's on the side of mankind. So that page, that first page of that, was brilliant because it was summing up the first photo story, uh, but reinterpreted by Eric Bradbury. And I will always remember that because I, I knew at that point I was like, oh, amazing, we're going to pick up plot threads from that first story so uh, i knew that that was going to be an, a very exciting story and, a, and it does become this epic battle between the original doom lord and, uh, and, and and the current doom lord so that's my page i would say from the the, the doom lord run that, that sticks out in my mind
0: fantastic well we will grant you those and hopefully i'll be able to share those images when this episode comes out so people can see what we're talking about um, Philip, fantastic stuff. Let's turn, if we can, to guest projects. Tell us about the University of Dundee and particularly comics there, but also the uh, Dundee Comics Creative Space.
1: Okay, well, I mean, the, the, the comics uh, scene, if you want, in Dundee, for, for me anyway, goes back 10 years almost to the day when I uh, met um, Chris Murray, who's in the School of Humanities, and he had been successfully running some modules in uh, in, in the English department on comics. And I was given the opportunity to start an undergraduate comics module at the art college where I work. And uh, we got together at Comics Day 10 years ago, where the guests were Pat Mills, um, Ryan Hughes, Skin, Alan Davis. Um, and I'm forgetting someone else there, but there was someone else there. Equal was important. But um, I was lucky enough to be invited to the, the meal after the event. And again, I, I lucked out. I ended up sitting beside Pat. Uh, so I was able to, to have a good chat with him. I, I ended up with a good chat with Des Skin at the, the bar uh, after as well, which was great. Uh, I was a huge fan of Alan Davis as well. So it was great to be able to uh, actually uh, see him uh, doing some sketches, uh, which was fantastic. Um, so we kind of got together at that point. We combined some of our content. We swapped out teaching time. So I would go and do some creative teaching on, on his modules and his uh, master's, which was, which was up, up and running by that point. And, and uh, he would come in and do some um, more academic kind of work with my students. And we just swapped out our time. And eventually it kind of became more formalized. Um, so around about 2016, we launched the MDes in comics and graphic novels. So there's two pathways now. There's an MLIT and an MDes. I run the MDes, des which is more about uh, practice and the M-Lit. It's a little bit more academic, although they cross over as well. And then again, about five years ago, um, we put in for money for... It was a part of the um, bid for the City of Culture in Dundee. We put in a, a proposal for a comic centre. Um, Dundee didn't actually get the, uh, win the bid for the City of Culture. I think it went to Hull. And so we repurposed the uh, proposal and got some funding from the Rank Foundation to set up Dundee Comics Creative Space, which is essentially a social enterprise um, which gives kids something to do after school, which keeps them off the streets. So it gives them something creative to do, uh, obviously based around comics. Uh, we managed to get a state-of-the-art facility in a building called the Vision Building, which is where various games companies uh, exist and other creative companies and uh, up-and-coming new startups and uh, things like that. So an, an inspirational building and space to try and get kids to aspire to in uh, their hand to this one day. You know, the creative industry, some people will turn their nose up at it. Some people will say, well, what's the point of that? Uh, you know, some people might question that going forward, given what we've been through. But I do think entertainment did play a part in this lockdown mm. and keeping people going. And, you know, and, and the creative industry never stopped. You know, the content is still being produced. So comics, games, well, comics in the UK anyway, games, films, TV, especially streaming services, all have content it needs filled uh, uh, mostly on the creative side so you have visual effects you have animation all needs to be produced you know it's kept going through the lockdown um you know um different ways of production for example the mandalorian uh, is all done with virtual sets so actually can benefit from virtual working if you want and the way we've had to work and adapt um so there is Jobs out there in this area, um, there's there's very very rewarding jobs, but I do also think it make does make a difference, and I do think for people's morale and, and keeping people going through this this crisis. I mean, I don't, I think it was mad because I actually watched uh, the whole run of The Walking Dead uh, <laughs> during the, the lockdown. Maybe a bit too close to home, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but but I think it is important in, in in these times and 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 coming out of. This lockdown and coming into a possible, you know, recession of sorts, or you know, an economic you kind know, of crisis, I suppose. You know, um, I think it's important that we have creative people and in, in, uh, involved in that uh, to try and come up with imaginative ways of delivering content or whatever that is, and to try and kind of pick up. I think you know, I think when, there's a, when there is a crisis, you often find that there is a spike in creativity and and, and creative jobs and, and how creative people can get involved in in society and, and trying to, to move things on so we don't just go back to the way it was before I, I sincerely hope that you know I do think there's been some massive negatives obviously with the lockdown but I do think there's been some massive positives as well and I think that people have connected in different ways and you know that's a huge positive and I hope that we can all take something positive from this and that that the creative industries can learn a lot from us and input into that. And I'm I'm a true believer that 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 is, that is uh, how I justify myself anyway in in the world and how I feel I'm making a difference. And and hopefully my students will get the opportunities I had going forward to have a very rewarding uh, and and creative um, career.
0: Excellent stuff. Yes, I mean it is inspirational, and as you're quite right. All the uh, the diversions and entertainment we've been turning to in lockdown, it, it all depends on the creative industries. So yes, <laughs> invaluable it's been. And yeah, let's please have that Dander collection from Ian Kennedy at some point. <laughs> yes. Now, of course, Philip, you've also got your own podcast. Tell us about Comic Scene, the podcast.
1: Well, it's kind of morphed a few times, so <laughs> and it's going to morph again quite soon, I think. Um, So I started off a couple of years ago just um, doing interviews with uh, creators who I've had or lucky enough to have had uh, visit the course. So I started off with people like Dave Gibbons, Pat Mills, Ian Kennedy, of course. And um, some other people um uh, from, from industry like David Sutherland, who's been drawn to Bass Street Kids since nineteen sixty-two. Again, luckily enough he just lives just down the road, so I was able to go to his house and do that. It's very easy. And uh and and I kind of I k kinda I kinda interviewed everyone I wanted to for that. And then I wanted to broaden the scope of it. And I remember that time Tony Foster from Comic Scene asked me if I would do the podcast just a branding, a rebrand really just uh, to draw some attention to the magazine, which he'd just launched. And I thought, well, why not? It'll maybe grow the audience a bit, you know, uh, there was nothing commercial. There's no commercial gain or, or idea behind it other than to get a few more listeners, if I'm being honest. Um, uh, so we, we moved it into, into that kind of format, which was more about talk, taking an old comic and a new one and doing a kind of, kind of review if you want. And uh, so we did that for about a year, did that for a year. about and then I kind of wanted to change it up again and I've been I'm not gonna lie I've been struggling a bit with the format recently I'm trying to reformat it what I'd like to do with it next is turn it into a, a little bit more of an educational tool I think something I've learned during the lockdown is that we've had to move a lot of our content online and our delivery online and I think maybe the podcast would be a really good way of feeding into that and adding content to uh, for an educational purpose without being kind of pool faced and being kind of you know too stuffy about it i really think we can maybe use podcasts as a tool as part of a suite of tools for educating and certainly educating in, in comics and other areas uh, as well so my plan is and I, I had a i had a short list of people i'm wanting to talk to specifically about process so i want to turn it into a kind of process led um, podcast, uh, and unfortunately, though the, the lockdown got in the way a little bit of that kicking off, so you might notice there's there's not been a lot of content on there. And it, I admire you for for fighting for pushing through that, along with everything else. That you obviously do. So you know, I admire you for for getting through it because it definitely, it definitely, I, I definitely lost my way a little bit on it, and and various some other things in my personal life got in the way as well. Um, so I couldn't really do what I wanted to do with it. But now everything's back on a an even keel. I do want to take it into that direction uh, and and talk to artists, writers, creators across a range of different areas and uh, genres, and and that, and really get to grips with how they produce the work, and and maybe uh, have some video content in there as well. I think you know Zoom and you know we use Teams at work as well, and you know using that format to share screens and share process and use digital you know capturing of of process where we can to me appeals to me and, and not just in an entertainment level but from an educational point of view as well and I think you get a bit more out of the podcast if you want if I take it in that direction so that's the plan as it stands I've got a short list of people who have already agreed to be uh, victims if you want uh, in the in the reformat of of the, of the podcast so uh, it's still um, available at soundcloud.com slash comic scene and um, but I'll probably rebrand it once I go into this more educational format if you want uh, so that's uh, where the content is at the moment. there's a lots of content there already uh, the back catalog is interesting you can pick and choose um, what you listen to there um but yeah that's where it's going next uh so if you keep an eye on space within the next couple of months i'm hoping to get uh, at least the first couple of episodes out of that
0: excellent stuff so there will be several links in the show notes for this episode including a link to your podcast as well philip we'll put that up there as well great stuff Philip, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and giving up your time. Um, I'm delighted I finally got somebody from Dundee on. I felt like <laughs> it was a gap for the podcast. We had to talk <laughs> to the heart of British comics.
1: Well, if you want to uh, get someone else from Dundee, I'm sure Chris Murray or, or Golnar and the days so or any other colleague in comics would be willing to come on the show at some point in the future as well.
0: We will have to set that up as well. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone for listening to Megacity Book Club. Uh, find all the details at megacitybookclub.com, including work, uh, links to all of Philip's other projects. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, the 2000 AD forums, and Spotify, or email me with book suggestions or comments at mcbcpodcast at gmail.com And that's it. Until next time, when we're passing judgment on another great book, uh, it's a goodbye from me and from Dundee. You buy for me. <laughs> <laughs>